The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning. That is certainly true that we are children of God. It makes me think of Ephesians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul writes that we are uh, to be praise of God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world uh, to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What a great blessing it is. We are no longer slaves to this world or slaves to our flesh, but we are free in Christ and slaves to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the reminder through song, through music, and through word of our standing in you. We ask, Father, that you would bless us now as we try to focus on your word, help our hearts to be open to the leading of your spirit. May our minds be sharpened, and may you take all the thoughts and distractions of our everyday lives away from us so that we can have a total focus on you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's most holy name. Amen. Please take a seat. It's been an amazing week of preparation for me uh, for this time with the Word. Uh, you ever have one of those weeks where it just seems, well, really, I should say those, one of those half a years, <laughs> where everything just seems to snowball on you? You know, nothing seems to be going right. Uh, you know, we had a big wedding not too long ago in my family, and... Uh, you know, it was a glorious event. We had a great time. But of course, you know, being the dad, all I'm focused on is the finances, the cost, and all this stuff. You know, our last daughter moves out of our home, and, you know, we're getting used to being empty nesters. Uh, I'm at the movies a couple of weeks ago, and I nailed down on an unpopped kernel, and half of my molar breaks off. And I'm like, great, thank you, God. You know, that's all I need right now. Another visit to the dentist, you know, Thursday. The entire air conditioning unit in our house goes out. And uh, the guy's coming out, you know, on Friday, and talking to him on Saturday, and, you know, saying, well, you know, probably it's about a 20 year old unit. You can use a new one. That'll be $4,600. And you're just like, oh, how can that be? You know, and God, what are you doing? You know, and, it, you know, last night as my wife and I are laying there in bed with the fans blowing on us, you know, it's like 87 degrees in our bedroom. and. I'm, uh, you know, I'm just, just probably like you. I'm just sitting there praying, and I'm thinking, you know, God, what sin has my wife done that has caused this to happen? I did not receive an answer, or at least a clear one, to that question. But we tend to think that way, don't we? You know, it's like, God, what are you doing? And yet, I know that some of you this morning are suffering, are going through things far worse than a broken air conditioner. Uh, and it's, it's hard sometimes to, in the midst of those things, to say to God, thank you. You are good God. One of my favorite profs in seminary, uh, John Hanna, uh, his daughter was going through a, a terrible situation with, uh, with a disease, a chronic illness. And uh, she went from this very petite, beautiful little adolescence girl, adolescent girl, to a uh, girl that weighed almost 200 pounds because of the drugs they gave her. And she suffered all the name-calling and stuff that goes with being a kid of that age in that situation. And yet Dr. Hannah was very real, kept us apprised all through the semester of how things were going. But I remember his prayers. Uh, they were dear to my heart. But he would just, you know, in all sincerity, 
as tears were coming down his face as he shared with us the condition of his daughter, he would just say, God, you are good. I have no idea why I'm praying that. But you are good. Your word says you are good. We're going to look at a story this morning where uh, in Daniel chapter 4, we are going to see that God is good and that we have to keep our focus on that. Even in the midst of some very trying and uh, difficult times, as Daniel found out and as we've been talking about, we have to just latch on to God and trust him. Let our faith be expanded and in our weakness, God show himself powerful. So we're in Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5 today. We're going to cover two chapters of the six tales of Daniel that make up the first part of this great book. We're covering chapters 4 and 5, the two tales that kind of merge together because they're fairly similar. Um, we're learning all through this series on Daniel how to stand firm for our faith, for our beliefs, while we live amidst a people that do not give honor to God. And nothing brings that more clearly into focus than these two chapters this morning. Uh, I've kind of looked at it and entitled this as an arrogance turned to humility. And we're going to see two kings having very similar experiences, but really having make diff very different decisions. And that changes the course of not only their life, but the life of the kingdom that they rule. So if you've missed it up to this point, if you've been on vacation, let me just catch you up a little bit. Uh, the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people, has gone through some very tough times, but they were tough times of their own making. How often is that true for us? But they were God's chosen people from the time of Abraham. We saw the entire nation come together under the leadership of Moses, the conquest under Joshua, the time of testing in the book of Judges, the calling forth of kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and then the division of the kingdom under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and so forth. And unfortunately, the northern ten tribes of Israel uh, turned totally against God through a series of very evil kings who desired not to follow in obedience Jehovah God, but instead to take into themselves the gods of the surrounding Canaanite cultures and make that their god because they could manipulate those gods they didn't have to do what they didn't want to do with those gods. Uh, God took care of them. About 700 years before the time of Christ, the Assyrian Empire, which was the main world ruling empire at that time, swept into uh, Israel and carried off those 10 tribes, and they were lost to us in history. That left two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And that's where our story picks up. Daniel is what's called an exilic book. It is a book written in exile. There are several books in the Old Testament where God's people are living in a foreign land because of his judgment upon them. In about 500 years before Christ, the nation of Babylon, the reigning world power at that time, comes in to the land of Daniel, to, to Judah, and they conquer that, and they take with them back home uh, the, the best of their society. Uh, young men who they feel that they can groom, re-educate, re-culture to fit their needs as a nation. This was a common policy in this day. Uh, the Assyrians, who were before the Babylonians, had done the same thing, uh, but we're going to see that that didn't work out too well for them. Uh, but with the Babylonians, in the selecting of Daniel and his friends that we've been reading about the last few weeks, uh, they are given the best of food, the best of education, and so forth. And what we've learned about Daniel, 
up to this point is that Daniel has determined that the service to his God is more important than obedience to his nation, more obedience to his culture. He does not seek a cheap grace that would allow him to compromise his spiritual views, his lifestyle choices. Uh, and in fact, most of what we're seeing in the early parts of this book are his demonstrations of faith. And because of that, Daniel, this man of God, has been given a position of respect and authority because time after time when he's called in front of a powerful king, he does exactly what the king didn't expect him to do, which is to interpret dreams and visions and to speak the words of the one supreme God to the king and thus cause the king to have an understanding of where he properly stood in God's cosmology. So Daniel is a man of repute. I call this before, this is a story of arrogance. And there's three reasons why uh, Babylon and their king Nebuchadnezzar would be arrogant. Uh, Babylon was the ruling power of the day. Um, as I said earlier, the Assyrians also had the policy of taking a conquered people, taking their very best uh, men and bringing them back home to re-educate them and find positions for them. This happened with one young Babylonian. The, the Babylonians did have an empire at one time called the Middle Babylonian Empire. They had a king already by the name of Nebuchadnezzar some 500 years before our story this morning. Uh, but they lost in their wars against the Assyrians. And when the Assyrian Empire grew, they absorbed Babylon and brought their elite home. One of those young men was given the job of being in the military and proved very adept at leading armies and so forth. In fact, the Assyrians ordered him to go back to Babylon at one point and put down some rebellions that had been breaking out by his own people against the Assyrian Empire. And it was this young man, Nebuchadnezzar, who once back in Babylon, instead of putting that revolt down, decided to instead unite his people, the native Babylonians, his people, and they would instead resist the Assyrian influence in their lives. And in fact, were very successful time after time in repelling Assyrian military efforts to make the Babylonians submissive once again to their empire. In fact, so successful that at one point, Nebuchadnezzar is able to go up to an important crossroads, and there with his Babylonian army, they squeeze off the supply line that feeds Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and eventually brings the Assyrian empire to its knees. And thus, through Nebuchadnezzar, most of the world begins to live under the dome of Babylonian authority. And of course, this leaves the crown prince, the regent, Nebuchadnezzar, to come to power. And if his father had grand ambitions, they were nothing compared to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, we know of him through extra-biblical sources. This is not just a story or a fable from the pages of Scripture. He was a true king. Uh, we see his name everywhere in the ruins of ancient Babylon. Uh, he was a respected king. For his purposes in this time period, some 500 years before Christ, his empire dominated the known world, the world of, of, of the Mediterranean area. In fact, pushing back Egypt, even Pharaoh's armies, to the borders that they had not been limited to for some 500 years. No one could stand before this nation of Babylon. They had many reasons to be arrogant and proud. And in fact, once he had consolidated his power, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, which by the way, his name means Nabal's favorite. He, I am my father's favorite child. Uh, this king began empire building. He began constructing beautiful buildings and 
in huge monuments. Uh, in fact, uh, supposedly one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens, uh, he marries uh, Princess Amethyst, who is the daughter of the Medes king, and he consolidates those two empires together. But because she was so used to living in what is present-day Iran with its beautiful climate and its trees and its flowing waters, and has been brought home to this arid Mesopotamian plain, which is in present-day Iraq, uh, she, she missed her home. And so he built for her uh, the Hanging Gardens, which was basically a ziggurat, a sort of a pyramid structure, in which he, through an ingenious water system, was able to create a place that was sort of a gigantic oasis where trees and uh, pomegranate trees and date trees and flowing streams were present and animals could live there. It was kind of like having a multi-level zoo right in the midst of this great city. The walls of Babylon were renowned. Uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian, uh, probably exaggerating uh, because I don't think he really ever saw them, but he says the walls were some 300 feet tall. Uh, today's excavations uh, give us walls much more modest in height, but incredibly large and wide for their day. Uh, Herodotus says that two four-horse-drawn chariots could ride side by side on the breadth of that wall. Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. Like most ancient Near Eastern kings, he decided the way to demonstrate his power, his wealth, his influence, his arrogance, was by creating a city-state that rivaled any in the known world at that time or any that had existed previously. So the nation of Babylon was great. Their king was great. And thirdly, they believed that their god was great. The Babylonians worshipped the god Marduk. He's often represented in uh, Babylonian ruins as the serpent dragon, the snake dragon. Um, he was considered the most powerful god in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. There was, of course, Marduk, who I just mentioned. There was Bel. There was uh, the goddess Sin, the goddess of the moon, and so forth. But they had many more gods. And part of the policy of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and the, in the power and the name, and Nebuchadnezzar took this very seriously, uh, in the power and name of the god of Marduk, was that for every nation he conquered, he took the, the, the image of that, of that god, of that nation, and he brought it back to Babylon. And every year, annually, they had the Feast of Akitu. And at that, this feast, the Babylonian king, by tradition, this is basically Babylonian New Year, would uh, sail down the Euphrates some 17 miles to a smaller city where the images of all these gods were kept. And then he would load these onto the royal barge, they would go back upstream, and he would present this at the central structure, which was the temple of Marduk, their, their supreme god, and they would align all of these uh, conquered gods, if you will, uh, around the image of Marduk. And thus, those gods and those nations were giving uh, obedience and worship to the supreme god. In this ritual, the king himself, including Nebuchadnezzar, as powerful as he was, he would once a year bow down before the priest of Marduk on his knees. And the priest's job was to come and slap him across the face as hard as he could. And he had to slap him hard enough so that tears were produced from the king's eyes. And then he would be asked the question, have you done everything in your power in this past year to please Marduk? Or have you done anything to offend him? And then if he had, there would be certain things done, including possibly the loss of his authority and power. Nebuchadnezzar 
believed in his God. He chose to believe that that God blessed him with the conquering of the known world. He believed that he enjoyed the privilege and status that he did, all coming from this snake dragon God. Now, it must have frustrated Nebuchadnezzar to no end that when he conquered Judah, and went in there looking, I'm sure that he did, for some kind of image of their God, Jehovah, he was probably unable to find anything except the very thing that got the Judeans in trouble in the first place, which were images of the Canaanite gods. But when asked, where is Jehovah, there could not be in that nation any image of God. Of course, because of the law that Moses had given to the children of Israel, the Ten Commandments specifically state, you shall not make any image of God. So what did he do? My belief is that he took the vessels from the, the temple that Solomon had created, all the golden utensils and vessels and cups and bowls and so forth used in their worship, some hundreds of pieces, all coated in beautiful gold. He took these and in, and in lieu of having a real image of God, he probably established these in the temple of Marduk. Not having any use for them, he at least thought, well, these would be valuable. This is made of gold. I will leave this here, and we have defeated the God of Daniel. We have defeated Jehovah. So it was a kingdom of arrogance. We look in our two chapters today, uh, and I'm going to have to boogie through these because we are trying to cover two stories. But basically, let's put it this way. In chapter 4, we have the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and he, this, this is different in this chapter as compared with other uh, parts of the book of Daniel because we're told immediately that the narrative this time is told by the king himself. He's addressing us through Daniel's God's book, the Bible. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He's not just talking to the people in his courts, nor is he talking merely to the Babylonian city-state. He is intending that this message go out to all that live under the umbrella of Babylon's authority. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then, sounding very much like an Old Testament writer, which this is, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His, that is Jehovah's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. How strange these words, this attribution must have been to Nebuchadnezzar to not give such uh, praise and glory to his god Marduk, but instead to give it to the god of Daniel and these exiles. It wasn't typical. And because he anticipates us saying, what in the world happened to Nebuchadnezzar? The king of kings, the most powerful man of all, what in the world happened to bring this situation around? And he's kind of saying by verse 4, glad you asked that question, let me tell you. He said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Nothing made this king afraid, by the way. That is a pregnant statement. Uh, as I lay in my bed and I see a dream that makes me afraid. As I uh, think about the fancies and the visions of my head, they alarm me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought in. And we've seen this before. Every time Daniel's brought in on the scene, uh, typically, the king is troubled by something, and he's calling all of his astrologers and his wizards and wise men, Chaldeans, as they're often called, into his presence to interpret what in the world has happened. And this is no different. 
So he brings them in, and of course, they're unable to do anything. And then somebody says to him in verse 8, at last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. So Nebuchadnezzar's taking the story back a little bit, and he is saying, back when I was a pagan, when I believed in a a polytheistic universe, a a worship of many gods, but yet supreme god being Marduk, uh, Belteshazzar, who he had himself named after Daniel's last successful entry into his presence, uh, he's named him after his foreign god. And he says, but yet he sees worth in him. And he says to him, I'm going to tell him the dream. This is what happened to me. And we're going to drop down to that and uh, look at what he says exactly. He says in verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and the height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. The leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all the beasts of the field and they found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all the flesh fed from it. So this is an amazing tree. It's gigantic. Uh, In Babylonian mythology, there was a cosmic tree that bridged the gap between heaven where God resided and earth where men resided. Not unlike the Tower of Babel from Genesis, right? So this cosmic tree had this, because this is not just a normal tree. Notice that all the animals and all the birds take their flourishing from it. And what we're to understand, I think, here by Daniel's interpretation is that this tree, of course, is Babylon. It is so great that everything that takes breath does so by permission of this great nation. Uh, So again, in Babylonian mythology, this would not be uncommon to see a tree as being the source of all life. It is that which uh, dignifies and identifies what power is in their their world. Um, But then something happens, and this is crucial. In the next verse, he says, in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Uh, We're going to take this as being an angel. Uh, An angel appears to him. And basically, this angel yells out commands that we don't know who they're being yelled to. I would assume other angels. Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump leave the stump. And I think what we're supposed to understand here, as Daniel will interpret for us, is that you, the king, are this tree, and Babylon is the nation. And as the representative of this nation, O Nebuchadnezzar, your your kingdom is going to end. Your representation of all that is in this world will come to a close. However, God's not done with you yet, because it says an iron band is put around this stump to preserve it, We don't really know, but we'll guess that's the case. So when Daniel comes in, he doesn't want to tell the king this interpretation, fearing the king's anger. Uh, He says, I wish this would have happened to one of your enemies instead, but eventually he gives him the interpretation. And then he ends it by saying this, uh, at the end of this vision, there is a man who becomes ostracized from his community. His hair grows long. His nails grow long, and he lives like the beasts of the field. And this is what's going to happen, and it says for a span of seven times, which we will take as seven years. Nebuchadnezzar hears this this prophecy, this interpretation of his dream. Daniel uh, 
was bold in saying this to this king of kings in the, in the midst of the arrogance of the Babylonian empire, this lone individual representing the defeated God in Nebuchadnezzar's mind comes before him and says, no, you were not uh, the victor over God. God used you as his utensil of judgment and punishment upon his people for his purposes. But here's what's going to happen to you now because you are so arrogant. You are going to be chopped down and you're going to become like a beast of the field. And so Nebuchadnezzar, it says in the next section there, as he walked, get this, I love this in verse uh, 28. At this time, uh, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, now a whole year has passed since he heard Daniel speak. And before we're really critical of Daniel too much, you have to ask yourself, when God has convicted you of something, when you feel like the Lord has told you to change something in your life, after a year, how likely are you to forget what he said? I, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to forget. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace, and we see that there really is no change of heart because he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of of my majesty. And while the words are still in his mouth, all that had been prophesied fell upon him. And this kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and so forth. And so everything that Daniel said would happen, happens to him. Now part of the amazement of this story is that Nebuchadnezzar is not deposed. Uh, he is the supreme king. But as we know from stories in the Old Testament, and then also certainly from other examples of kings in this time period, if you show any weakness at all, you're done being king. Your son will assassinate you. Your friends will try to depose you. Uh, your wife will plot against you. Uh, all they're looking for is just a crack, a weakness in something in your armor, and they will get rid of you. However, from this story, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar spends fully seven years in insanity, in madness acting like an animal. Now, I don't know if he's prancing around in those famous hanging gardens, living like the beasts of the field, or if he's out actually on the Babylonian uh, river delta uh, acting this way. We just don't know. But at the end of seven years, it's said that he is restored. It's not unlike the book of Job, where God allows Job to be tested and to be assailed by our enemy. And at the end of that time, God rewards Job for his faithfulness by giving him more lands and more children. Well, here at the end of this story, Nebuchadnezzar is put back into his place. He is reestablished. And if we drop down to the end of chapter in verse 34, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says this, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar's picking up the narrative again, Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven. This is, this is, this is crucial because in Babylonian mythology, Marduk did not live in heaven. He's looking the wrong direction. And I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I, I take that looking to heaven as being a sign of submission. You win, God. I may have conquered the entire known world, but you've conquered me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. And notice what he writes here. And this is in tribute to this God of Daniels, this Jehovah for his, Jehovah's dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's a kingdom. A dominion is a kingdom. He's basically saying, my kingdom may be great, but God, your kingdom is far more uh, superior. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Mine has lasted my lifetime, 
but yours has no beginning and it shall have no end. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? I was saying earlier when we experience problems, that's sometimes our question to him. What have you done, God? Why are you doing this? It's a hard question to answer. But one thing that Nebuchadnezzar came to the understanding of is that God is in charge. The thing that Job came to the understanding of is that God is God. He is sovereign. The second story we're going to look at in chapter 5 real quickly is the story of King Belshazzar. Now, there's going to be references all through this chapter that Belshazzar uh, is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He calls him father. But of course, what we do know historically is that this title, father, is a common one used in this culture, even among the Israelites, to reference a person of esteemed position. It doesn't necessarily mean a genetic bonding as much as it means an attribution of all my wealth and source of power comes from you. And so what we do know is that when Nebuchadnezzar finally dies, his son, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, also takes that title and uh, lives for a very short period of time in authority as a king. He's deposed, most likely assassinated, and a new man comes up to power uh, who does not worship the god of Marduk, at least not putting him in a prominent position like uh, the others had done. In fact, uh, this king worships the goddess of Sin, the goddess of the moon. And this just causes no end of trouble for him in trying to rule the Babylonian people who had been used to the blessings of Marduk. And we're not really sure what, to what extent Nebuchadnezzar had pushed forth the worship of his god Jehovah. But nevertheless, uh, Belshazzar's father is not even in the kingdom. The threat of imminent doom is coming up from the Persian world. The Medos and the Persians have joined together to make their own empire. They are coming forward and they're going to try to usurp the Babylonian uh, rule. So more, more than likely, Belshazzar's father, who's the true king, is out fighting on the outskirts, on the frontiers, trying to protect his nation. And he's left his rather dissolute son back in the kingdom who takes to himself the title of a king, even though he is not a king, and he is having a great party. You know, uh, he's just a classic picture of a child of privilege who has not had to do anything to earn his way, now taking full advantage of his father's absence to party like there's no tomorrow. So as we open up chapter 5, that's where we're at. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lord, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Uh, remember what we were talking about earlier, Nebuchadnezzar probably could not find any god for his annual feast day, the uh, feast of Akitu, to bring into the presence of his God. So he had probably taken from Solomon's temple all of these gold and silver utensils, and he had just established them in there where they had sat for decades with you know, lack of use. Uh, and this young whippersnapper, Belshazzar, decides to have this party, even though that many were probably telling him the kingdom was in danger. He should have been out with his father defending his people. But instead, he brings out these, uh, these vessels, these holy vessels, and he puts non-sacred drink into them. And everybody, including not just his, his, his court, his men, 
but also his women and his concubines. He's debasing this by purpose. And then, in verse 4, he adds insult to injury when he says they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So all those defeated gods that the Babylonians were aware of and their whole pantheon of gods that bowed down and worshipped either to Marduk or Bel or Sin. Now Belshazzar is saying this god that used to have this temple and that these artifacts are from is of so low account that we are going to drink in his vessels and we are going to show his uh, lack of status by then worshiping these other gods, not only our gods, but the gods of others who that we have conquered. Not a wise move. That was enough to gain the attention of our Heavenly Father. Immediately, it says in verse 5, the fingers of a human hand appeared <coughs> and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. We do know from excavation that the king's throne room, where probably this party is taking place, uh, is indeed uh, paved with white plaster. And somehow on this, probably for that very reason, the hand is writing in some script uh, these words. Uh, and if we drop down through the chapter, what we'll see is that these words, according to Daniel, uh, many, many tekel parzin are God's judgment upon this king. And in no way does this king show any respect or fear of what's going on other than the fact that he's, he's just terrified of the supernatural image that is before him. As it says in verse 6, then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. We should not mistake this for a repentant moment like Nebuchadnezzar's. This is just a man who's seeing something he cannot explain, and he doesn't know what to do with it. So once again, just like Nebuchadnezzar, he calls for all the wise men, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and so forth, the enchanters, and they come in and he says, what do these words mean that have been written upon my banqueting hall? No one can answer that. But thankfully for Belshazzar, to his rescue comes the queen mother. Uh, no one knows exactly who this woman was, uh, possibly uh, one of the wives or concubines of another Nebuchadnezzar, possibly the wife of his mother, which is probably the, or excuse me, of his father, which is probably more likely. It's certainly not his wife, but the queen comes in, and knowing of Daniel <coughs> and his reputation, she says to him, O king, live forever, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the, name, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. And again, we should not get too focused on that word father, other than to understand that this queen mother is saying to him, the, we as Babylonians revere no one as much as we revere the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And if Nebuchadnezzar thought this guy was so wonderful that he raised him up and gave him wealth and gave him position, well then we are not violating any Babylonian code of governing policy by bringing him forth now to help us in this situation. So Daniel's called in, verse 13, uh, he's brought before the king, and then notice this sentence, the king answers and said to Daniel, this, this, this sentence that he says here is just dripping with sarcasm by Belshazzar. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. 
Now, in chapter 4, Daniel was probably a middle-aged man. By this time, in chapter 5, he's, some people recognize he's 80, 85 years old. He's an old guy. He's nobody's a young chicken. And Nebuchadnezzar had great use for him, but in the succeeding kings, uh, Daniel was probably very rarely, if ever, called into court. By the time we get to Belshazzar's time period, uh, Daniel's living somewhere in the city-state of Babylon. Uh, he's still revered by those who can remember that far back, but by Belshazzar, he has no use for him. You are that Daniel. Ugh. One of the exiles of Judah. You don't even have a proper right to be in my court. You're not one of us, whom the king, my father, that is Nebuchadnezzar, brought from Judah. I've heard of all that you have done, uh, that the spirit of God is in you, and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And then he basically lays forth the problem. What am I going to do with this handwriting on the wall? And he promises Daniel that if you can tell him the meaning of these words, I will honor you. He says, I will put a purple robe about you and have a chain of gold hung around your neck, and I will promote you to third in the kingdom. The number one in the kingdom was my father out fighting the wars on the outskirts. Number two in the kingdom, that's me, but I will make you third. Daniel answers him and says, let, you, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for you. And as you read through the rest of this chapter, we're impressed with the fact that Daniel is telling him that basically God is done with you. You have offended God's holiness by using those vessels from the temple for your own pagan worship, and I will not abide by it. And it's Daniel's testimony to him that these words written on the wall, basically they're money terms, mina, 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 uh, basically is just a measurement of, of a coin. Uh, it's probably a Babylonian measurement of 600 shekels, or excuse me, 600 grams, which equals 60 shekels. And then it's twice, so it'd be one, two. So it's probably 62 shekels. And they couldn't figure out what that meant. I think there's a little play on words here because at the end of this chapter, after Belshazzar and the Babylonian kingdom is conquered by the Medo-Persians, uh, Darius the king, it's the very last verse of this chapter, verse 31, says, and it says, Darius the Mede received the kingdom that night, being about 62 years old, which may be the measurement of that many, many. It's within the uh, purviews of the use of those words that that's possible. However, just as Daniel says here, more than likely these passive verbs uh, are now are going to be used in such a way to mean uh, just what he says, as he says, God has numbered you, you have been weighed, and you've been divided. You're found wanting. And thus brings an end to the great Babylonian empire. And as far as we know, never to be raised again in such a great empire. We know that this was a great uh, kingdom. It was something that was so dominant in its time. It was full of arrogance and pride by those who ruled over it. But Daniel did not stand for that. Daniel stood for his God. And as we think about that, how do we stand firm in a nation that doesn't give tribute to God, that doesn't recognize his value, that does not uh, in any way uh, want to give uh, you know, tribute to him as king and creator? How do we live? Well, we look at these downfalls, and we see that the contrast in these two stories between Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, Belshazzar in chapter 5, is that one, Nebuchadnezzar, is a rush to divine mercy. He goes through the judgment that God has for him, and then he repents, and he turns back to God, and he writes those amazing tributes to him that we read just a second ago. 
Belshazzar, by contrast, rushes to divine judgment. Uh, his kingdom and probably his life was required of him that very night. How dangerous it is to fall into the hands of an angry God. In Luke, uh, we were told that in the parable, uh, as Jesus is speaking, that uh, God calls him a fool. You know, you build this barn, you build everything to create great wealth, but you fool this very night, your life will be required of you. And so the great King Belshazzar, or the imitation King Belshazzar, finds that to be his case. So what do we do with this? I love the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, as powerful as he is, takes upon himself and recognizes that he has shame. Those who are in authority over us, those who are in power, whether that's a boss at work or whether we're looking at our current political structure, we have to understand that there should be shame when we, un when we understand and deal with our sin. As I'm laying in bed last night without air conditioning, I had to confess my sin to the Lord, my lack of faith as to what is he doing. And I'm reminded over and over again that he is a great God. True shame is okay. True shame is a shame engendered as a uh, result of our rebellion and sin before God, as in Nebuchadnezzar's. It is when our sin is exposed before God and at times exposed before others that our embarrassment can propel us into the arms of God. Not all of us are called to be a Daniel. Maybe none of us are called to be that man. Like Nathan in the days of King David, who was called in to say to David and bring conviction into his soul after his great sexual sin uh, in his lifestyle uh, or lifetime, where Nathan says, you are the man. And Daniel is basically saying that to both of these kings. I, I love part of this story too because uh, sometimes we start thinking about our spiritual victories and things that we like to do and that God has worked in us and we think of these pinnacle moments in our life. And some of us, as we give testimonies, speak to things that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago as being the great moment in our lives that we were obedient to God at this one point, and he used us in this manner. But as we see in the life of Daniel, this happens to him over and over and over, and the story isn't done. Next week, Jeff is going to pick it up. And even with this new king in power, Daniel will once again be brought before him. And it will be whether or not at that point Daniel is willing once again to exercise his faith and to say in the face of overwhelming odds and the most terrifying of situations that I give testimony that the Lord Jehovah God is the creator and ruler of this universe. I don't care how much wealth and power you may have. I don't care how much uh, you love yourself and love your system. And I don't certainly care for any gods that you may worship. God is God. But for the rest of us, if we're not a Daniel, it just is a call to a faithful life. We have to stand firm and live faithfully for him. That is what we've been called to. <coughs> I, I think sometimes when I watch TV and I see the celebrity culture that we live in, you know, athletes, entertainers, politicians, and so forth, there's great wealth. Uh, people amassed fortunes to themselves, and yet to be faithful to God, it doesn't always wind up that way, does it? When we're faithful to the Lord and we give to others and we we lay aside our money for him, and we lay aside our life's ambitions for him. It's hard to know how to deal with that. Sometimes it becomes so tempting to want to be just like those in our culture, those that live for themselves. <coughs> I think of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 73, when he says, I envied the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. 
They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff, they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. It's going to cost you something to live for your God. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? I'm so powerful, I'm so wealthy, I'm so beautiful. No one can touch me. Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. And as we're tempted to live that lifestyle, as we see the arrogance that's before us, if you've been watching TV this last week and we see... The, the different political conventions going on, and we see what can only be described as unbridled arrogance by people who have not bent a knee to our God. We understand that we as Christians, if we're not called to be a Daniel, then we have even a tougher job in some ways. And that is to live for the one true king. Not the king of kings that would rule us politically. Not for the people that have the greatest influence on us on this planet. But to live in light of who our king is. And we switch to Philippians chapter 2. What a contrast from what we read in Psalm 73. Our king is like this. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're going to follow your king, it's going to mean a different lifestyle than the culture that surrounds you. It may mean humility. It may mean poverty. It may mean hardship. Matter of fact, I can guarantee you that if you're being obedient, it probably does mean those things. We as Christians have to live for a different, different king and not be absorbed into the lives of the people around us and not to desire that which they have. That's the only way that we find freedom. That's the only way that we will ever discover how to stand firm for our God is by not being part of what this world system has to offer. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I praise you for your word for the story of Daniel in chapters 4 and 5, for the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, that great king who discovered that he wasn't so great after all, that there was someone greater. There is a king of kings, and he has already come, Father, and he has provided freedom for us. To all glory and honor goes to the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody, now and in the future and in the past, above and on earth and below the earth, will confess that there is one God, there is one King, and his name is Jesus. Father, we may, we, may we be obedient to his calling, to his leading, and may you free us from the shackles of trying to live like the people about us so that we have the freedom to be who you made us in your image.
Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.